Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verses 30 to 41, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Human and the Divine. There's enough going on in every faithful church that should cause the observant person both to rejoice and to be renewed. Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, my goodness. Simply to say that is to say so much. It is he that gave life to the church. It's he that continues to guide the church. The Holy Spirit has been poured out among us. His activity is everywhere seen. Again, just look for it. You'll see evidence of the divine in every faithful church. But as you also know, there's all sorts of evidence of human foibles, you know, moments of triumph followed by moments of failure. There's enough evidence in every faithful church to leave one disappointed and even disillusioned. Churches made up of followers of Jesus sometimes sin and sometimes get cross-threaded with each other. You know, consider the words from Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat you, Oidia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, sometimes we pass verses like that by. I mean, after all, they're just biographical details. No one ever takes the time to memorize this passage, at least. I've never heard one repeated back to me. It's a passage, you know, that's been put into our hearts. And yet, think about what it tells us two women, and we've forgotten anything about them, but what is said in these verses. They said Paul labored side by side in union with each other and with me for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, and yet somehow, and somewhere along the way, something happened between them. They got cross-threaded. Their disagreements with each other became widely known, and Paul realizes that left to themselves, these women would never resolve their difficulties on their own. Someone else needed to step in and help. Unless in our own conceit and arrogance, we think that, hey, I mean, who knows if these women were even saved? Well, Paul immediately corrects us. No, no, he says, the names Euodia and Syntyche, those names are written in the book of life, saved women, women who know the reality of the Holy Spirit living within, and yet now women who in some fashion were out of sorts with each other and who couldn't work with each other anymore. And that's what I mean when I speak of the local church consisting enough of the human to rip each other apart and enough of the divine to fill us with joy and faith and love and hope, the human and the divine in every local church. And when I think of the ancient church in the city of Antioch in Syria, I think more of the divine than of the human. You know, we first read about Acts chapter 11. A persecution against the church had broken out in Jerusalem. And in verse 19, it tells us that some people who were driven out of Jerusalem traveled north into Syria as far as the capital city at that time, Antioch. Initially, those persecuted only preached the good news to the Jews, but there were some men who decided to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in that city, and they won a great number of Gentiles to faith. And so it was in Antioch that that bold experiment began, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. No, not two separate churches, you know, the first Jewish church of Antioch and the first Gentile church of Antioch. That was at Antioch that they saw that God was tearing down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile and making them into one people group in Jesus. That's evidence of the divine. And when the Jerusalem church heard it was happening, 
You know, they asked Barnabas, a key leader in the church of Jerusalem, whether or not he would travel there and teach those believers and establish them in their faith. And he agreed, but he had an idea. It was then that one of the great partnerships began, Acts 11.25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And why shouldn't he? I mean, after all, after Saul's conversion, or as we know him now as Paul, after his conversion, it was Barnabas who brought him to the apostles and vouched for him. This man's a genuine convert, and they began to trust him. So it wasn't just Barnabas that went to teach and preach and disciple the new believers in Antioch. It was a partnership. Barnabas and Paul, two men, arm in arm, partners for the gospel, fellow soldiers in arms for the cause of Christ. What a team they were. And as we've seen in this study, that when the leadership in Antioch was fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke through one of their prophets, or maybe a number of their prophets, that the Antioch church would send out Barnabas and Saul for a missionary journey. And those two men had, for two years, soldiered for Christ. They'd established churches. They'd seen amazing things happen. Gentiles were crowding into the kingdom. And then, of course, the trouble started, that human part of the equation. The Judaizers, or Christian Pharisees, showed up, and they were sowing confusion. But Barnabas and Saul, arm in arm, took them on. And as we've seen, that led to the Council of Jerusalem. And now the two men show up again in Antioch with two men in tow, Judas and Silas, key leaders from the church in Jerusalem. I mean, those are good days. The confusion in Antioch was about to clear up. And so that's where we pick up today. I'm reading Acts 15, 30 to 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the council of Jerusalem is over, and all that remains now is to communicate what has occurred there. And as we've seen, the party that arrives in Antioch, has a letter, and it's read. And it must have been a relief. The fight with the Judaizers or the Christian Pharisees was essentially over. The church had clarity. Gentiles would not be required to be circumcised or to keep a kosher diet. But the moral commands associated with following Jesus, they were to be maintained. God's people were to be a holy people. But Luke, who records this event for us, says more. The two leaders from Jerusalem, that is Judas and Silas, were themselves prophets, he says. And what a wonderful time to find that out. Now, in our day, the role of prophets in the ancient church is often forgotten. Luke doesn't mean to tell us that, you know, those two men had authority from God to write scripture. You know, they didn't have authority to give doctrinal direction. That's not what was being communicated. Indeed, as we read through the book of Acts, the role of the prophets, well, that should be clear. You might remember that back at Acts 13, that the Holy Spirit had spoken and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas and send them on a missionary journey. That no doubt had occurred as various prophets spoke. Indeed, Luke tells us exactly that when he says in Acts 13, verse 1, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So the prophets listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit would speak and they would share what the local congregation should do. Or you might remember Acts 11, 27 to 28. It says, Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so this then is the role of the prophets. It was not as some have suggested that these men were needed because the New Testament had not yet been written. That can't be the case for what these men said had nothing to do with the writing of the New Testament. The prophets spoke to local situations. Now, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and so consequently, the church in Antioch put money aside. They sent relief to the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, the money was delivered on that occasion, yeah, you guessed it, by Barnabas and Saul, that great team. And so these prophets never spoke about God's once-for-all supracultural truth or God's doctrinal foundation for the church. Rather, at any given moment, they spoke about matters of local concern indicating what God was telling the congregation to do. You know, on one occasion, collect money, send Paul and Barnabas. I mean, that kind of thing. And that, we have to assume, is what these two church leaders, Judas and Silas, now did. After the letter was read, they had words of encouragement. I have no doubt their encouragement would have looked something like this. Don't hesitate to carry out what you've started. Keep planting new churches among the Gentiles. Even though it will mean persecution, trust in God and you'll have success. And in consequence, the church in Antioch was encouraged and strengthened. Judas and Silas then, after they've spent considerable amount of time in Antioch, went home. And Paul and Barnabas, that great team, well, they stayed in Antioch. And they went right back to preaching and teaching. I mean, after all, that's what they'd been doing before they left on a missionary journey. And so now... They simply resumed their activity in Antioch. But now there was so much more to teach. If the Gentiles are full heirs of the kingdom of God, well, it's important to know how a person is saved and how a person grows in Christ and how Jews and Gentiles are to continue to be one church together. Paul and Barnabas, still a team, carrying on together, teaching the local church. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. Join us, would you? Begin today. Experience the story of your redemption in the pages of God's book. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I've said that there's so much of the divine that happens in every faithful church. It's because God is among us. He sends his teachers and preachers. He even sends prophets who are called upon to encourage God's people. And and by the way, you know, I'm sometimes asked if I think there should be prophets in the church today as there were prophets in the early church. Well, my response is that I'm cautiously positive about that. 
And I put it that way because according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 and following, God has so designed the church that the apostles come first, second come the writing prophets or those who write the scriptures. Those two offices have ceased. That's because the New Testament has been completed, which is the eternal foundation for the church. Everything we now do is built on that. Well, third, says Paul, come the teachers, those who explain and apply the teachings of the Scripture to our own lives, to the life of the church, and to the life that we live before God. Teachers help us to glorify Christ, to trust Him, to obey His commands in all things, and to be actively involved in the ministry that Christ has assigned to us. And that includes making disciples of all people groups, being involved in the Great Commission. And on that foundation, as I see it, well, a door is open for people with the kinds of prophetic gifts that are meant to encourage God's people, to motivate them, to believe in the promises, to react to a local situation in keeping with the truths of God's Word. And so, yeah, I think that we should pursue a kind of prophetic gift today. But since I'm cautiously desiring such a thing, I'm also aware that in some circles, people have used supposed prophetic gifts to disrupt, to teach false doctrines, to bring chaos and disorder, and also to communicate that they can't be questioned because, after all, they speak words directly from God. You know, that can and does happen. And so people with prophetic gifts have to be subject to and accountable to the local body of believers and the leadership of that church and the leadership of Scripture. Well, as we've said, we see in every gift, in every activity, both evidence of God's presence among us, but also evidence of our own failings and sinfulness. Well, what happened next in Antioch shows us both a combination of the human and divine. So now I'm reading Acts 15, 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we have to imagine Paul and Barnabas spending a season teaching the principles that were contained in the letter from the church in Jerusalem. And I have to imagine that during that time, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. I'll talk about the contents of that letter tomorrow, but there has been so much to teach. Remember, at this time, no single book of the New Testament had yet been written. Galatians, probably written in the year AD 49, would have become the very first New Testament document. It's so important for us to remember that this document follows shortly after the Council of Jerusalem. I think that Paul taught in Antioch, after Judas and Silas left to go home, what he also taught in Galatians and then sent to the churches that he and Barnabas had begun there. Now, that's all part of the divine, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul to write a document that would become the 40th book of the Bible, a book equally as inspired as Genesis or Deuteronomy or Isaiah or Jeremiah. I mean, these were amazing days indeed. God was among them. Then after all that was done, Paul and Barnabas are no doubt praying together. You know, at times they would have been praying with a whole church, but sometimes I would imagine just the two of them. 
a deep conviction arises in their hearts. They're going to go back to each of the churches they planted, do the missionary journey all over again, see how each church is doing. Perhaps they'll present the Jerusalem letter. Perhaps they'll also teach what they've been teaching in Antioch. Yeah, they're in agreement. Let's do it. And of course, they don't just go the next day. Now, there are plans that have to be made. I mean, what about finances? What provisions have to be taken along the way? And of course, the really fun question, who do we take along? And now the human part of the equation enters in. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, or as we know him, John Mark. You remember that later in Colossians 4.10, Paul happens to mention that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Ah, yeah, family connection. And you might also remember that way back when Barnabas and Paul had brought the money to the Jerusalem church because of the prophecy regarding the famine. Remember that? They're coming back to Antioch, and Acts 12, verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So I have no doubt that that was Barnabas' idea. But back then, Paul had been all for it. And then when Barnabas and Paul left for their first missionary journey, Acts 13, verse 5 says, They had John to assist them. And that's where the first sign of trouble began. Do you remember Acts 13, verse 13? Well, it says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. I mean, that's all that Luke mentions. But now we learn that moment really didn't sit well with Paul at all. Luke doesn't tell us whether the next part of the journey, you know, one through the mountains, a place that was filled with bandits and other wicked men, you know, was too frightening for him? Or was he just homesick? Did he have some, you know, agreement with Barnabas that it was okay to go? I mean, we don't know about any of that. We only know that he went. And now we learn that Paul said that he'd withdrawn from them. And other translations put it more bluntly. Paul thought he had deserted them. At a time when they needed him, he'd just gone home. Now, we don't know if Paul and John Mark spoke much about that when they got home. I mean, did John Mark apologize? Perhaps he did. Perhaps, you know, let's just say that perhaps Paul had forgiven him. I assumed that Paul had no feelings of animosity towards him. Now, that was done. It was done. But forgiveness is one thing, and trusting him again, that's something else. And Paul might have remembered how when he had been stoned at Lystra, and there was a likelihood that rough stuff would happen on the second missionary journey. Yeah, they had won many to faith in Christ, but they'd also made many enemies. This was no time to take a man like John Mark along. Better take someone who could be counted on when the battle becomes engaged. Now comes, you know, the most human of all verses, verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. I mean, what? You know, the great missionary team, the greatest of all friends and colleagues, the men who marched through Satan's land together, fought the Lord's wars together. They had such a fight. These men decided to separate. So who was right? Well, I suppose if you'd asked Barnabas, he'd say that even the great Peter himself once denied our Lord that Jesus himself had reinstated him. Can't that be done for John Mark? And Paul might have said, look, look at what's at stake here, the well-being of the believers. Those believers are right now in the midst of persecution, and if they see one of us running away again out of fear, well, that young man has the potential of doing great damage in these churches. Furthermore, Paul might have argued that John Mark has a character defect. Well, the argument got so heated It became impossible for these two godly men, Paul and Barnabas, to carry on as they had before. 
And in consequence, Barnabas took John Mark, sailed for Cyprus, which I think is interesting. I mean, of all the places they had visited, that had been the place where there had been the least amount of opposition. Of course, that also was the place where Barnabas had been born and raised. I think Barnabas was trying to rebuild John Mark's confidence and make him ready. But Paul, he's a pure warrior. He's noticed that when Silas had been in Antioch, that he was a remarkable man. And so he must have made arrangements for Silas to join him in ministry. And in the end, Silas will become as good a partner in the gospel as Barnabas had been. It was a great choice for Paul, and those two men would change the world. So what would become of John Mark? Well, in his very last letter, before his execution, Paul would write these words, and they're found in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. And there Paul writes, Luke alone is with me, that is, in my imprisonment. And then he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Yeah, that's John Mark. He's a man who actually redeemed himself. And that's ministry, isn't it? It's the human and the divine. It's God's work among us and our own foibles. And in the end, however, God gets all the glory because he continues to motivate the church forward. Let's not despair. Whenever a local church has foibles and marks of the human, let's continue to look for God to do mighty things among us. And let's be encouraged. The divine continues to direct the Church of Jesus Christ today. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I think this is a tough question. Maybe we overlook it a bit, but how do we bring the fallen back into fellowship? (laughs) Yes, well, um, you know, I mean, obviously in Matthew 18, um, Jesus speaks about those who have sinned. Um, and, uh, and, and how to restore them. So I think we need to follow the, uh, the counsel there. Uh, we need to look for ways also to graciously, as graciously as we can, to allow the fallen to repent. For if we, um, you know, if we stand over them with a wagging finger and saying, I told you so, I mean, we make it difficult for them to do so. Uh, We need to also remember to those who have fallen that each one of us have sinned in various ways. So graciousness and yet calling on people to be repentant and then to quickly envelop them and, and to welcome them into the fellowship of God's people. So I think there's a lot that's required of us here. It's a great question, Ben. Uh, and let's continue to pray that we're faithful in this matter. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. 
Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.